turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. I will be reading verses 22 to 30. Luke 13, 22 to 30. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Let's pray. Jesus, I beg you for the work of your Spirit in me to... Read accurately and say faithfully in differing ways what you had to say on this day, recorded by your servant Luke, and that you cause our hearts to hear and to leap and to love the truth of your gospel. Amen. Let's get the picture starting with verse 22. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Luke knows what that means. We know what that means. Journeying toward the flat-out rejection of the nation to who he is in a brutal cross. And then on this journey in one of the villages, someone says out loud, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, I think all thinking Christians, have, we've asked ourselves that question, haven't we? I'm a Christian, I'm saved. I really believe I have eternal life and it's for me, but everyone doesn't. How many? What about all the pagan persons and cultures throughout the centuries and those who the gospel has never reached and... How many? Is it a small percentage or larger? And this would have been a very interesting conversation that this guy brought up, except Jesus did not answer his question directly. Instead, he directed it away from this abstract speculation about percentages or how many to specific application to every person in that crowd. 
and in this room. The man asked, Will those who are saved be few? And Jesus turned it around to ask, Will the saved be you? That's the question for us this morning. It's a question for every child or teenager being raised in a Christian home this morning. Do you want to be saved and recline at the table in the kingdom on that future day? That's the question. Do you want to avoid the weeping and the gnashing of teeth? Do you want to avoid having Jesus say to you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. If that's what you want, Jesus says this is how you get it. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now why is this important? I mean, especially for religious people like us, this is who it's originally addressed to, religious Jews. Well, the answer to why that commandment is important is in the second part of verse 24. For, that's what it means. Here's the reason. Strive to enter through the narrow door because I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. So Jesus says, look, here's the reality. There, there's a place where people will come in their life where there's part of them will seek to enter the kingdom or through the narrow door and they won't be able to. Here's the structure of the text. Therefore, strive to enter through the narrow door. The Greek word, therefore, strive is the word Agonizesta. You hear our English word that we get from it? Agonize. Agonize to enter. The implication is that those who will be saved must agonize, must struggle, must wrestle. The only other time Jesus used this particular word is when He said, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting or agonizing against you. They, would, they wouldn't just let me be taken. So Jesus is saying that entering the kingdom of God, this in this text, this future, there's a banquet table coming and it has not happened yet. Do you want to be there? That will mean something prior to that. And that is striving. It's a, it's a battle. And I say kingdom of God because as we're going to read on, the context tells us that the narrow door is the narrow door into that future kingdom of God. Look down at Verse 28, where Jesus says, 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God. So, the narrow door through which we must enter is the kingdom of God in the future. And outside of that door are those people where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's hell. This is referring to eternal judgment for those who are not saved by Jesus. For those who have not been cleansed by Jesus' blood. Now, Matthew shows us another occasion where Jesus says it this way in Matthew seven thirteen to 14 Enter by the narrow gate For, or because I tell you, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by that gate are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so what? is at stake in Jesus' demand that we strive to enter is heaven and hell. Now we're going to come back to, what does it mean? What does striving look like? Is I just strive just one day or is that throughout my Christian life? What do you mean strive to enter? And what are we striving against? We'll come back to that. First I just want, now let's slowly read through the Word by word, what Jesus unfolds here in this text. And I'll come back to that larger question. The door, he uses the term, the door is narrow, is normally a biblical image for the idea of the future, the eschatological kingdom, the banquet table, the getting in. And that's how he uses it here. And he just clearly says the reason we need to strive is, second part of verse 24, because... You don't want to be one of those people who when you, oh, okay, I guess you were the Messiah. Okay, I want to enter. And it's too late. And he gives now an illustration in the text to unfold what that will look like for those who can't enter. His main point is there is one door. It's a narrow door. And there's only one door. And which is Jesus Christ himself. As he says in John, he is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody gets in. Nobody comes to God the Father except through him. The entrance into the kingdom of God, into God's loving eternal presence, is narrow. It is exclusive. It's not broad and it's not all-inclusive. Now, we as persons and as professing Christians who even do at times may say, hey, I believe God's really loving, so, you know, He he will have a door and make a way for really sincere, basically good people to get in. And that's fine. Say it, I guess. 
But that's not what Jesus said. He made the way narrow without ever asking us for our opinion on it. And so starting with verse 25, Jesus begins to give a parable or illustration to try to unfold what he just said. Which is going on in its context. His audience are his fellow Jews. And he's saying to them, not like you thought, many of you won't make it. Many of you will fail to enter through the narrow door. Start with verse 25. Illustration. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then He will answer you. I do not know where you come from. You've got to feel the historical context. He's saying to the Jewish nation, without a response soon, there will be no access to you later. You must listen and receive my words now in order to sit at the banqueting table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets later. One must come through that one door. God's door. God's way. And they must come while there's still time. He says to him, do not think that this door of salvation will forever be open to you. When God shuts it, it's shut. And as with the first century Jews, in this context, so it is with all of us even today. Don't ever assume. I'm young. Got time to sow to my fleshly sinful desires. And then later, I'm going to get serious about Jesus and about the gospel and about holiness. Then I will strive to enter. You may find the door shut in your face and you will not find within you the ability to. Later on, decades later, This is how the Holy Spirit says it through the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. Professing religious people, church, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know how afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. 
because he found no chance to repent. Though he sought for it with tears, Jesus opened up. I don't know you. And so, now in our text, Jesus, in this parable, goes on to speak for his Jewish audience at this point, because they're a little stunned and surprised so far at this little story. What do you mean locked out? And you don't know us. Pick up verse 26. He says, Then you will begin to say, We ate and we drank in your presence, Jesus. You taught in our streets. Let's just get context now. In the first century, the understanding of the vast majority of the religious Jewish nation was that for the most part, all Jews are God's people and they're going to be saved, except for the horribly rotten ones who refuse to keep kosher and Sabbath day and stuff like that. But being a Jew is about synonymous with being welcomed into the kingdom. So when this question came from the crowd, how many are going to be few? They're waiting for Jesus to say, well, of course, all of us Jews are going to be okay and saved. And stinking Gentiles, well, maybe we can convert some to Judaism and then... You know, they come to me, the Messiah be good. But other than that, they're expecting, yes, of course, Jews, but for the rest of the world. See, they assumed that it would be almost ipso facto automatic. I'm Jewish. I keep the Mosaic law. I keep ritual. I'm going to be included in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jesus says to them, many, not a few, the word is many here, many of you, my fellow Jews, will try to enter and you will not be able to. Implying that the majority of his hearers will not make it into the kingdom of God. And they were stunned. It's such crazy talk. They're privileged. They're God's people. Jewish and special. In the text, Jesus, your appeal is going to be, okay, oh, we finally see it. Okay, you were the one. Okay, let us in. We heard you teach in our streets. Jesus, many of us have sat down and broken bread and eaten with you. Jesus ate and hung out with people. The problem is that familiarity with Jesus, you taught in our streets. We sat at table with you. Familiarity with Him, familiarity with His teaching, I went to Sunday school all my childhood. I knew all the stories real well. Familiarity is not the point. Relationship with Jesus personally is the point. This is, this is how Jesus says it in Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord Jesus, Lord 
did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in the name of Jesus? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, religion, church going, being in ministry. Look at all these things we did. Being born a Jew. Being born into a Christian family is not the point. Being known by Jesus. Having that personal relationship is the point. As Jesus says in verse 27 of our text, But he, the master of the house, will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And then Jesus goes on to describe that place of departure as hell. Verse 28. In that place... There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. The image Jesus gives here is shocking to his hearers. And it's clear and it's painful. Weeping and and gnashing of teeth are there to depict an emotional and physical reaction to horrific news. The horrific news that Jesus is delivering this day is saying that the majority of you, my fellow Jews here, I'm standing in front of the first century, will be locked out. It's stunning. And to add fuel to the fire, He goes on in verse 29. Not only that, and people will come from east. The east. And the west. And the north. And the south. And they'll recline at table in the kingdom of God. He just said to them, Not only will many of you kosher-keeping, Sabbath-keeping fellow Jews be shut out and gnash your teeth as you see Abraham. There he is, and Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets. But not only that, sitting, eating with them will be untold numbers of stinking, unclean, non-Jewish, ceremonially-keeping law Gentiles. That's what he just said to It is stunning to them. And Luke, in his second book, called The Acts of the Apostles, he shows how God had a work, even in the apostles, to fulfill 
Jesus' prophecy of how this is going to unfold. Do you remember? I mean, you've got to understand, for probably at least a year, maybe two, the apostles, they, they were clueless still that they could preach the message of Jesus to Gentiles and they'd be saved. God had to knock Peter upside the head with a supernatural encounter in a vision. And then Peter still argues with him until God finally gets his point clear. Now go obey me, Peter, and go to the Gentile house and haul his Gentile buddies and preach Jesus to them. And Luke is unfolding how slowly they're getting it. It does start with the Jews. And the Jews are the bedrock. They are the tree. And from, the, from them comes the Christ. And, and the message is to go to them first. And now it's going to eventually work it out to the Samaritans and to the other parts of the earth, the northeast. So, and so Luke takes pains to get that. You know, Jesus said it even more clearly in, in Matthew 8, this whole future banquet, saying, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, he means my fellow Jews, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, After his death and his resurrection, he called a particular man for his own sovereign purposes, a Christian-hating man until he converted him. His name is Saul, Paul. And Jesus gave the goods, theologically, of what Jesus is saying in our text this day, of how that works out in God's redemptive plan. And I'm going to read more extensively than I probably should as a pastor on a Sunday morning. But I just want, because Paul writes, I think, pretty clearly. So just listen and let him teach. This is the goods that Jesus gave to him. In chapter 9 of Romans, you can turn there or listen. Starting with verse 1, Paul says, and he himself is a Jew. But he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Okay, over what, Paul? Over the fact that the vast majority of the Jews are continually rejecting the message of Jesus in order to be saved. This is what he's referring to. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, that is, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, his fellow Jews. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For, here's his argument, not all who are descended, bloodline, physically, and genetics, not all who are descended from Israel, Belong to Israel. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are his natural offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul interprets, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise who are accounted as Abraham's offspring. And then you flip over into chapter 11 of Romans and Paul summarizes it this way. Now he's writing predominantly to Gentile believers in Jesus, the church in Rome. And he says this, starting with verse 25. Lest you be wise, Gentile Christian, in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Here it is. A partial hardening of the heart has come upon Israel. Until Something happens in the future. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come into the kingdom. And we're still in that time. We're in the times of the Gentiles. And he goes on. And then in the future, in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written... The fulfillment of this, particularly to natural Israel, will come about. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's Paul's interpretation. What Jesus says right to their face. And then finally, Jesus closes this section in, with an illustration. Talking about, what's it, what about this end time banquet? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, eating there. He, he closes it with verse 30. Essentially just saying, it's going to be the reversal of what many of you think. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. In other words, many of the Jews thought, I'm Jewish, I'm in, I'm a law keeper, I'm first. <laughs> many of those will be last. And the last ones, Gentiles, <laughs> many of them will be first in the kingdom. The idea that I'm first because I have distinctives. I'm born in a Christian home. I'm so good. Go back. I'm born Jewish, like Paul, of the tribe of Benjamin. Keep Sabbath, keep kosher, do it really well. Therefore, I'm first. That idea is absolutely excluded. Or, or these people are last. They don't do what I do. That idea is absolutely excluded by Jesus. Now why? Because salvation is all. Okay, how many words can I get to say 100%? Totally, absolutely, and only of grace. Mercy. 
This is what Paul says in Romans 11 to drive that point home. To drive the point home of why God in His sovereignty is doing redemptive history in the way that He is doing it. He's got a goal. And starting with verse 30 of Romans 11, he says, For just as you, let me be clear, it's what he's saying, just as you Christian Gentiles, non-Jewish people, just as you were at one time for centuries and millennia, you were at one time disobedient to God, but now, with the gospel coming to you, have received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, there's coming the time from that backdrop, they also will be shown mercy. This is what Paul thinks about that. Here's his next verse. Here it is. For God has locked up or consigned all. All there means, there's only two peoples in this way. There, there are Jews and then there's everybody else. All Gentiles. God has consigned and locked up everybody, Jew and Gentile, <laughs> to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all of them from among the Jews and from among Gentiles. So Jesus' ringing main point in this text is strive to enter into eternal salvation. That's his message whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It's the same message that Paul would have no problem preaching to Gentile professing Christians on how to live their life in the context where we've been in Romans 11. He starts in verse 19. You Gentile Christians, you will say to me, well, Paul, the way you're teaching, you're saying branches, Jewish people, were broken off in order that I might be grafted in to eternal salvation, to the tree. Here's Paul's answer to that. You're right. You got it. You're hearing me clearly. That's what's happened. That is true. But he wants to clarify it. Don't miss it. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, Gentile Christian, you, you love Jesus? Keep striving. You stand fast through faith. So therefore, do not become proud. But fear. Fear what? Fear unbelief. Strive every day to fear unbelief. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, Jewish people, for their unbelief, neither will He spare you, Gentile, if you don't strive to enter and forsake Him, and your faith proves to be false. Note then the kindness 
And the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen in unbelief. But God's kindness to you. Provided you strive to enter through the narrow door. Okay, he says it differently. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Here's our text. Yeah. Let me go back to where I began the sermon with the application. Okay, how, what is it? How are we striving? What are we striving against? That's a big question. Strive to enter. Why? Is there something trying to hinder me? And Jesus is saying, yes. And that's the question. What is it that is our enemy that we need to fight against? Well, we know from Scripture it's not human beings. We don't wrestle and strive against flesh and blood. What we strive against is our sin. It's our own sin, temptation, deceptions of Satan. You remember how Jesus put it in Luke chapter 8? The, the four soils. Those four soils of the gospel coming, of the word of God coming, and how, what it does in particular hearts, I think is so key to understanding the Christian life. The daily striving to enter through the narrow door. Remember, when the word falls on rocky ground, it sprouts up. I joy in Jesus. And then he says, it dies. And you pick up in Luke 8, verse 13. He interprets it. But these persons have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing, fall away. They failed to strive to enter through the narrow door. Verse 14, he goes on. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear the word. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. They do not enter through the narrow door. See, one person here falls away because of the cares, the worries, the pain, sufferings of life. Or this is how it's put in, in Matthew. Tribulation and persecution. Can't take it. And they fail to enter. But the other person, almost the exact opposite. Problem. Fails to enter because everything is just going peachy king for a person who lives for this temporal life. The pleasures of life. Money. Riches. Jesus' point there, Jesus' point about strive to enter is that there is no safe place anywhere in your life to not have to be striving. That which would steal eternal life from you. Marriage, kids, 
job. Everything is going peachy king and awesome. Let's build barns. Jesus says, danger to your soul. Strive. Strive to enter. Strive against having any of those things become more valuable and precious to you than Jesus, than the gospel, than striving to get through the narrow door. Marriage, kids, job, everything is hitting the fan. Pain like you didn't know existed. Worry about the future you thought unfathomable ten years ago. Jesus says, that's danger to your soul. Strive to enter through the narrow door. You know, Jesus actually warns much more about when everything's going well in your life. No problem with finances. Money is available. Health. You just assume it. He warns more about the pleasures of life as a danger to the soul than he does about suffering. And for us religious people, it is more often the pleasures of life that entice us away from Christ. The pleasures of life do not often awaken our need for Christ, our desperateness to know Him more. Suffering and pain often are used that way. And there's another one Jesus brings up, danger, strive against it, and that is the desire to be praised, be acknowledged by people. Praise out great am I. This is how he warns about it in Luke 20, verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. He says, beware. Beware means look out for, strive against this that it not enter your life. Seeking of being praised, but enter through the narrow door. Jesus warns about the danger and destruction of immediate pleasure. That's how he says it in Luke 21, verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day when He comes back comes upon you like a trap. And you have failed to enter through the narrow door. He says there are drugs. There's alcohol. There is an inordinate amount of entertainment that weighs the heart down and makes it sleepy and ultimately fails. To enter through the narrow door. 
And of course, most often Jesus warns directly against the danger of money and all those things that money can buy. Jesus put heaven and hell at stake with the issue of money, didn't he? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Striving against making wealth and the things it buys our happiness, our God, the source of what will really fulfill me. Living that way is the opposite of striving to enter through the narrow door. That's why Jesus warns so often against the lure of money and riches and clothes and cars and homes and everything that it buys. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You cannot serve God and at the same time money. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink what kind of clothes you're going to wear? He often does it. And then he says to us in verse 24 this morning, strive to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. Oh, really? Come on, is it? Yeah, this is what I'm saying. That is the Christian life. No, no, Jesus said that. He went to, no, it's the Christian life. It's all over the epistles. I mean, listen to how Paul talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians 9. Starting with verse 24, Paul writes, Christian, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize. So strive. Okay. Run. That you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we do it to receive an imperishable wreath. And so Paul says, I do not run aimlessly in my life. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching Christ to others, I myself should be disqualified. Or the Hebrew writer speaks to all of us professing Christians this way. Take care. Cautious. Sounds like striving to me. You've got to strive to be aware. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. All right. Here's the large question I want to pose then. 
If what I have said is being faithful to the meaning of our text in the Scripture as a whole, in the Christian life, is this striving to enter, this taking care, this being vigilant to persevere in faith to the end, is that consistent with resting in Christ's finished work? That's a big question. Now, depending on over the last 40 minutes how you are hearing this striving, persevering, taking care as the Christian life itself, it may sound to you as a burdensome, miserable way to live. And Jesus hated a particular type of religious burden. I mean, he said it this way, Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And Jesus, on the other hand, beckons, invites, welcomes us into his kingdom to eat and sup with him forever. This way, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Okay. okay, see, I feel the tensions of all that and everything I'm saying. Now, I hope that every person in here who is a believer in Jesus hears what I'm about to say. Because here's, here's the question. Is this striving consistent with resting? And Jesus has finished work on the Christ. And so here's my go. What makes Jesus' demands of strive to enter and a hundred more demands that he makes to us, what makes those seem burdensome is the assumption that we're left to ourselves to live that way. And I just want to pause for an hour with quietness. Can't. And nothing could be further from the truth if you understand the gospel. Jesus came to shed his blood, the blood of the new covenant, the new covenant which was promised in the Old Testament, the new covenant that Jeremiah laid out. This is the new covenant I will make with him. The new covenant that Ezekiel would lay out in a couple places. And at the core of the new covenant was, because I can quote a lot, but I don't want to for time's sake. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the new covenant. 
Or Ezekiel says it again another way. I'll soften your heart, make it like flesh, so that you may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. He not only says strive, because Jesus knows all of his sheep will be enabled to strive. All of his, he not only says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, he knows that all of his sheep will be enabled to come. He not only says constantly to us in our daily lives, through the word of God, in the conviction of the Spirit, if you're a believer, repent of that sin. He also is the one behind the scenes enabling his sheep to go down that road. So when a person hears the gospel of Jesus and they're born again by the Spirit, saving faith springs up, they are justified. Their sins are absolutely forgiven. They are assured of eternal life. They will never, ever, and cannot miss being seated at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It will happen if what I just said happened to them. And it also means that you will be a person who walks in newness of life. That's what the new covenant purchased. Which is another way of saying it. it means you will, in an imperfect way, but a very different new life way, in repentance and faith, in repentance and faith, be walking in obedience. Or just to say it another way, it means you will be striving to enter through the narrow door. Okay, I, I thought about ending the sermon there this week, but I thought, I don't know, it may, it may be a long sermon. I just think that at that point, okay, that I want that to be able to understand the gospel, to understand as you wake up and I have no energy to fight my depression, I have no energy to fight my bitterness or my sin, you start with the gospel. You, God, soft in my heart. My hands, okay. Now, but everything I think I've said you're thinking with me. It, this is what brings up the historic problem that we call in theology the assurance of salvation. See, the scripture is clear that there are people who think they're okay. They think they're saved. They're going to make it. And they're not. Depart from me. I never knew you. And many people in the history of the church and in the present day try to get rid of the problem of the assurance of salvation by trying to define faith, the faith that's saved, believe in Jesus, you're saved, is to mean some mere decision of the mind to affirm a couple basic truths about Jesus. He is God. He died on the cross for sins. God raised Him from the dead. I affirm that. That's what faith is. You've done that, you're saved. Trying to get rid of the biblical problem of striving. Oh, some have even gone further denying that there is any kind of lifestyle, life change that is necessary in order to demonstrate that faith which saves is real in you. But, you know, those kind of schemes, if you just want to be a Bible person, don't work because they just don't cut it with so much 
of Scripture. And not only that, they're very dangerous because they give millions of people a false assurance of salvation. And they're going to die. And they're going to be stunned. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. And maybe they would have had a shot if they wouldn't have been deceived about what faith meant in the gospel. Because that anesthetized them to the hearing of the true gospel, to repent and to believe and to be saved. So what, okay, how do we fight? Here, let me just, there's different ways to do it, but I just want a brief summary. That means believer, wake up every day. Let me, let me divide it up into two, two, two realities about this fight for assurance. The first is this. Understand there is the objective outside of you. Care how you feel, what you think. Objective reason for resting in our eternal salvation. And there is the subjective reason for resting in that objective eternal salvation, which has to do with genuine faith. The objective reason outside of you that we rest in as believers, is the work of Christ. I can say it lots of ways. Let me just give you one short verse. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, Christ's death, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time. Done. It's done. Who? And this is, comes the problem, doesn't it? Those who are being sanctified. Made holy. There's a lifestyle. The strivers. The repenters. The embracers of Christ. It's going on in their life. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's the objective reason. The subjective reason is right. Okay. Is my faith real? Is there the fruit of genuine faith of being sanctified? And that's why the assurance of salvation, which is a precious gift we should always fight for, is part of the battle of the Christian life. Because if I turn in my sin, in unrepentance for the next three weeks, the less my assurance should be up there. Unless i got a false gospel. Because the question isn't Christ's work. The question is, wait a minute, am I real? How come I'm living as if I'm not real? Where's repentance? Where's a love for Christ? Where's a love for others? That's the battle. and That, that is a true battle of every true Christian. Okay, so be encouraged in, in that. So that brings us to two aspects I just want to talk about very briefly about okay, faith. Yeah, no, there is. If you have come to faith, saved by faith, if you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. If that faith is alive, you at that very initial faith had been justified. All your sins forgiven. Forget about it. all your dirty, sinful life and anything you've done. Jesus is perfect human living 
has been put to your account forever. That's happened, and it will never be taken away. If, that's, if, if you've come to genuine say faith, that's the question. What is this faith? And I just want to say two things about it. Faith that saves and thus will strive to enter is a spiritual seeing of the beauty and the glory of Christ in the gospel message. That's what it is at its core. In other words, when you hear and you read what God has done for sinners in Christ, to one extent or another, something happened if you're saved. And that which happened is that you were struck. <laughs> it just struck you is delightful, beautiful. That's exactly what I want. Somehow it struck you as the glory and the beauty of Christ to, to your heart. Even before you knew you were saved, maybe, by it. That's what happened to me in 1981. It took me about eight months to find out what happened to me. But I look back and that's what happened. Now, now I'm not going from experience because what I just said there is exactly the way Paul describes this faith in 2 Corinthians 4, so if you want to turn there, where he's going to say here in 2 Corinthians 4, what Satan blocks from the unsaved people that keeps them unsaved, this is what he does. What he blocks from them is the ability of their minds to see the light of the gospel. Verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of who Christ Jesus is who is the image of God. They can't see it. Doesn't mean they don't become churchgoers. They just can't see this. See, saving faith consists of the miracle of light shining on a sinful human heart, and that heart is forever changed. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Did you just jump down two verses now? Now He just talked about unbelievers, those who are perishing. They're, they're never going to strive. They're never going to enter the narrow door. This is why they can't see and Satan blocks it. Now what's so weird is now he doesn't talk about Satan. He talks about an act of God in verse 6. And he says, to you who are entering the narrow door, verse 6, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness in creation is the one he acted, who has shown, shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's at the core of faith, which brings us, okay, struggling. If this is true, this objective aspect of the gospel 
and subjectively this happens to a person, then there is a very strong warrant for believers to rest. To rest in the guarantee that their sins are forgiven. And that their eternal salvation is sure. I said there's a... a, a a, a reason, a biblical reason or warrant for resting because there are all kinds of unbiblical reasons and people give for resting that everything's fine for my future. Like, oh yeah, that, that appeals to me, the idea of weeping and gnashing teeth. I don't want that, so what do I do? Get baptized, okay. What do I do? Oh, say a prayer. Okay, okay. I'll do that. Okay. Yeah, because I, I would like to avoid, if those things are true, a future like that, and they'll do that, and they're called... Christians, but it is unwarranted resting if for many of those people their so-called faith did not consist of I see the treasure and the beauty and the value and the desirability of Christ Jesus and His glory for me. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians but for those who see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ have strong reason to have assurance of their future salvation. So, as I close now, literally three minutes, practical steps. Large outline. Wake up every day. Every day is a battle. Every day is striving. Sin is beckoning all the time. We are not delivered from our sinfulness as a believer. What has changed is our heart has been made alive to God through new birth. It's very different than it was before or for anyone else who is outside of Christ. We have this tension and how do we battle? Battle first by not going inside but looking outside of you daily to the gospel. Meditating it, knowing it inside and outside. Knowing Romans 3, knowing Jesus' words, understanding propitiation by faith. What did Christ accomplish? How the wrath of God against me was put upon Him and God raised Him from the dead. This is true. Look at the gospel so that you can see and so that the light will shine and that your heart will rise again and again and again. By the Spirit, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, from one degree of glory to another. In other words, look to where the place is that God shines the light. And that's not on your internal feelings. He shines the light on the gospel so your heart sees. And power comes. Don't become overly introspective concerning your struggling for assurance of salvation. I just, I just say, don't become introspective. Don't become overly introspective. In other words, above reveling in that which is outside of how you feel today, which is the Word of God, the Gospel of God. Consistently look away from yourself to the Gospel. Okay? And then secondly, as you're doing that, you are doing it, right? You do that regularly. Praying regularly, now or 50 years from now. Today, God, open my eyes 
let the eyes of my heart be soft and break this hardness right now going on in my relationship with this child or this person at work or whatever it is. And I got bitter. God, today now bring repentance, bring repentance. Soften me with your word. Open my eyes. And and you watch as a believer, he's doing it. And then the third thing is you act. You go out and practice loving God and loving others. That is the striving, the battling. The reason I say that, loving others, listen to how the Holy Spirit says it through John. 1 John 3, 14. Come on up, search. We know, we know this, that we have assurance of salvation. Okay, that's what we want, right? Well, that's what he meant. This is how he said it. We know that we have passed out of death into life. It's, we're real. We're truly, we belong to Christ. We know that because we love the brothers. So look outside to yourself daily first. Pray and open my eyes and love other people. As you do, you will watch your assurance of salvation grow. Believer. Because you are saved. And you've been saved by grace in Christ alone. And it's evidenced by your striving to enter through the narrow gate. Jesus, would you, by your Spirit, by the glorious gift of intimacy with your Father who is our Father through you and in you. Work these truths not just in these closing minutes, but for the rest of our lives. Make us a desperately striving, seeking people. That in the midst of pleasures, we can pray and thank you for the gift In the midst of suffering and pain and setbacks, we can pray and thank you for your sovereign ways. And through it all, to strive not to let any of those become a God of discouragement or a God of the pleasures of the world. And it is in you and your great new covenant that we place all of our hope. You have started a good work. And you will complete it. You are great. Amen.